And welcome everybody to the Think Education podcast with uh, uh, Chris Hill and myself, Judith Lammy. And we are delighted today to be joined by Stephanie Martin. And I'm going to um, pass over now to, to Chris to do what usually I might do in these situations. Hence, you could see I did Chris's bit at the beginning in that he is now going to uh, eloquently <laughs> and expertly introduce Stephanie. Over to you, Chris. Oh, that's that's a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, thanks for that, for Judith. Um, yeah, it's it's a great pleasure to be joined by uh, Stephanie Martin, who I met, um, I suppose, the tail end of last year uh, when she was presenting some of the research that she had done that was published in uh, a book sort of edited by a former podcast guest, uh, Dr. Zenith Kamp, um, who uh, we talked about academic integrity with. Um, so delighted to have Stephanie with us today. Um, Stephanie has over 10 years of experience in the education profession in, in Australia and international school systems, which makes her uh, ideally placed to, to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, Stephanie's the co-founder of Advanced Education Consultants, which is a Dubai-born education consultancy that strives to bridge the gap between research and practice in the MENA, so Middle East and North Africa education. She brings strong expertise in building and sustaining high-quality pedagogical practices to enhance teaching and learning in schools. Um, Stephanie has a plethora of experience in designing assessment methods that foster 21st century learning skills and assisting leaders in implementing research-based practices into educational organizations. Stephanie's passion lies in mentoring educators, driving development of pedagogy frameworks that will promote quality learning experiences for students, She's a published co-author, columnist of the EduTimes Africa magazine and a dynamic international keynote speaker. And having heard Stephanie speak uh, in person, I absolutely can attest to the dynamism of her, of her um, speaking style. Um, it was a great pleasure to hear you speak in, in public, uh, Stephanie, and, and in person. I mean, very passionate about, about your subject. Subjects, I suppose, really, because you're very well qualified. And today in particular... Um, we're going to talk to you and learn from you, um, particularly about decolonizing the curriculum. Now, my, uh, my link to this came, I, I read a, a post that you put up on LinkedIn that referred to uh, an article that you'd written in EduTimes Africa, and we'll, we'll link to that. Um, and obviously part of that's about your, your own background um, and your own heritage within education and international education. Um, and so delighted to have you with us today. Um, and maybe we could start, um, if, if it's okay for me, Judith, to start the first question. Um, uh, Judith and I, we've talked on a lot of podcasts and to a lot of people uh, and written a lot about transnational education and about identity and about values and about exporting identity and what that means and what that means for the home and what that means for abroad. And it's something that Judith and I... Um, Despite our genetic makeup and our historical training, you know, it's something we've talked about and thought about a lot. I'm very interested to hear from, you know, your expert perspective on what do we mean by decolonizing the curriculum? Like what, what's, what is this? Um, and is it a simple thing we can do easily? Obviously, the answer to that is no. Um, but how should we, how should we think, about, think about this? Nice, easy, small question to start, I guess. Just a small one to start with, Chris. Firstly, thanks for the um, very lengthy introduction. You certainly have a way of making your guests sound 
somewhat like we're on this fantastic platform and we've forgotten half the things that we've done. So thank you for that. And uh, Judith, thank you for having me also. It's a pleasure to, to be here and to share my insight on what is probably, um, I would say, Chris, just an answer to your question. Decolonization is probably a term that we're starting to hear a little bit more about. I, I think that what sparked um, this term is a number of different events in modern history. Um, but it's, it's a word that we are still somewhat tiptoeing around um, and we're not quite sure exactly how to talk about it. So to put it simply, um, when we talk about decolonizing, we're really aiming to acknowledge and to rectify some of the biases and I guess those Eurocentric perspectives that have been dominating our educational content and our curriculum programs for so long. So what it is, is it's it's not so much about deleting history or trying to rewrite history in a sense. It's actually the opposite. We're looking more at telling the accurate versions of history, um, broadening our horizons and, and starting to incorporate those diverse voices. But more importantly, we're really trying to actually reshape our students' minds. Because, of course, when you and I were at school, Judith, when you were at school, the version of history or the curriculum programs that we were perhaps presented with or that we learned um, perhaps had those gaps and silences and didn't actually ask us to question and to challenge and to reframe or restructure or rethink why, why is it that our curriculum has been presented to us in this way. Um, in the international education system particularly, um, and I know you talk a lot about what's happening transnationally, this is becoming something that is just more and more relevant. Um, and I think, funnily enough, we are having this discussion today. You know that with the current world events, it's even more important that we're actually looking at the importance of decolonizing the curriculum because I guess what we're aiming to do is to have our students look at why our learning is the way that it is. Why do we preface our curriculums with these particular languages. English is the most popular curriculum language if you people research in the statistics. It has been the most universal language uh, for all cur curriculum and instruction for decades now. So when we're asking our students to ask that question, why? How did English become the top tier language? Um, and I guess my background as well, being South African, so I'm of South African descent, um, I'm the daughter of immigrant parents who moved to Australia uh, and I'm, as you can probably hear, I sound a lot more Australian, um, but I often do get that question, you know, you, you sound Australian, but you don't, you don't look Australian and now you live in Dubai, you're an expat, um, I'm married to an Italian, my son's born in Dubai, the, you know, the story goes on. And so as we're becoming sort of more of this global citizen society, this whole point of decolonizing is getting us to just understand how do we get to where we are, why are things the way that they are, and also having a look at perhaps those Eurocentric biases that have, I guess, built the way that we are systemically as well. I know that's a very long answer. There's a lot to unpack. Yeah, well, no, I mean, absolutely. And it's, um, there's a, yeah, as you say, there's a tremendous amount within this. Um, that, that helps us really set the context. Uh, what's, I think, really interesting as I said, Judith and I have talked about this in the past where particularly as, as international and transnational education developed, one of the key f factors was that the host nation wanted the sending nation. They wanted the education because they needed the education. They needed the degree effectively. 
And that came with it basically saying, as long as you run this degree in your home country, you can run it in ours. We trust your quality assurance. You can bring it here and it's, it's fine. But that's a sort of a, a reputational indicator of what the quality could be or should be. But the actual values that are being taught, the type of uh, material that's being taught, even the, the examples given are set in the home country, England, Australia, France, America, wherever it may be. And we see this conflict in many T&E situations where you want the degree, but you don't actually want the thing that's coming. You don't necessarily want the values. You don't, you don't necessarily want that mimicry. And certainly T&E can and has been accused of, you know, another form of colonization in the sense that it's repeating or, you know, something that exists that isn't necessarily wanted. And I'm, I'm wondering, is, is this... You know, this, this notion of decolonizing the curriculum, you, you're talking about raising the profile, filling in the gaps, filling in the spaces, you know, increasing the voices over wherever and everywhere. Um, how is that done practically when, when you're balancing it against the, the quality assurance of effectively a product, right? A, a thing that exists and, and that is, is being required. And yet, how, do, how does that get balanced? I mean, practically, because it's, it's, it's an interesting philosophical, theoretical conversation, but obviously... Practically, how, how, how should this be addressed or approached? Absolutely. And I think um, this is a great question because what's happening is we're starting to become more aware of it, but the how is still the question. How do we actually move forward? Um, and we're, we're sort of at a crossroads where people in education, so our educational leaders, um, our educators, we're more aware of it. So diversity, inclusivity are our, I guess, big buzzwords that drive um, what decolonize what, what people's perception of decolonization is, Chris. But the how for me starts with educating our educators. Hmm. So a lot of teachers are out there, and also higher education um, professors, lecturers going, I know about it, but what does that practically look like? What it I'm gonna start with what it's probably not, um, and, and sort of I guess diffuse the myths that are out there about decolonization because quite often decolonization gets confused or blurred the lines I guess with with diversity and just merely saying all right I've got you know some African authors on my reading list of literature or I've also got some Asian literature or I've got some Arab poets because I'm in the Middle East great I've, I've ticked the diversity box but that doesn't actually get our students to critically question anything or evaluate or reframe their thinking to come back to the how, it really starts with A, our educators being informed and actually understanding what theory and research says about decolonization. So what is it exactly? And understanding the difference, that there's a difference just between throwing in your representation or your diversity card. Um, the other thing is, is we need our teachers to understand how to feel those discussions with students. And I think particularly when we have educators who perhaps um, in their own pedagogical practice, tend to sway away from these deep, difficult discussions. And I know a lot of our educators right now will be finding it immensely difficult to be able to build kinds of discussions with students around current world conflicts. But it's not necessarily about also placing one religion, one race against the other. It's about going, here's history, here's what happened, why do you think this happened? What are the things that humanity deemed as important back then, for example? And particularly when you look at colonisation, you can see where the priority was. Um, when you look at different wars, when you look at different um, colonial events that took place, 
if we can educate our teachers on how to field the discussions, we don't get to write the curriculum programs, obviously. They come to us. Okay. Policy comes to us. But what we can do is look critically ourselves at the curriculum and go, okay, so where are some really appropriate places in this curriculum to field these kind of discussions? So awareness is one for our educators. If our educators are aware, they can make our students aware. Our educators have to understand that, yes, the curriculum is given to us, but we can still also look for ways to have our students using that critical thinking and not necessarily just taking that curriculum as fact, looking at it and actually starting to become a little bit more of an evaluator, if you like. So we're tying back to the 21st century skills, but it is as simple, I always say, as actually looking for the holes and instead of ignoring the holes, shed a light on it and go, well, this is what has been presented to us, but what are we seeing out there that could also make us question um, and what we're seeing? So it's tricky. I understand what you mean. It's tricky to navigate because we never want our students to necessarily think that what we're teaching them is a waste of time, but we do want them to go out into the world and be able to have these discussions and these debates and talk about controversies without engaging in some kind of conflict, you know, that ends up um, being more on the offence, if you like. So that, this is a fascinating topic, um, Stephanie, and, and one that one has to, I imagine, navigate through quite carefully. You know, I mean, I, a couple of, I suppose, just thoughts from myself before coming back to you with, an, with a, another few questions, I suppose. So interesting uh, uh, when you first talked about it, about it being about acknowledging, you know, bias, about it not been about deleting things in the past in history but about having and I quote you an, an accurate version of history and, and that it that must be enormously difficult in many ways because there are there, it is something it depends how far back you go with history doesn't it really uh, and it, it reinvents itself all the time doesn't it so I suppose what really strikes me, though, with what you've just said is maybe it's less about the what. So, you know, what exactly did happen in 1973 or 1844 or 1535? By the way, I don't know what happened in those years. I just thought those out of thin air. So I'm sure those are really interesting. But, but it's probably less about what exactly happened and more about... Sounds to me anyway that you're saying it's more about us working with students to enable them to critically question what might be presented to them as to what happened around that time and the fact that whatever you're reading or you're you're connecting into, people will be writing it through the lens of who they are, what their own identity is. So there there can't be in a sense any common universal truth for everything because everybody will be looking at something from their own perspective i don't know am i way off base here or is absolutely that kind of I, I feel like i'm starting to tie myself in knots in my head slightly no but you know it just, not at all. It just seemed to me something that really struck me when you were just you were just talking there it's 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 about the how as opposed to sometimes about the what, in terms of what we're teaching and what we're learning. 
Absolutely, Judith. And if I can just respond to that, you've hit the nail on the head. And it's it's a very broad concept. It can seem overwhelmingly large in, in terms of how much there is to cover. And you're right, it is a difficult concept because we've come from this place of really the teacher being traditionally the imparter of knowledge on the student. And now we're moving in the opposite direction with education and it is becoming far more student-centred. We are no longer just learning from a textbook that tells us all the facts. The students have access to. And, and, you know, this is actually, I guess, a blessing and a curse. Yes, presented with far more information than we've ever been before, but it also presents an opportunity for us to have those students question the information that they're, uh, I guess, receiving. And, I mean, we know about fake news and we know about also media bias. So there's that. But then what students have to understand, so they, they do really well with understanding fake news, media bias, because they know it's out there. They don't understand necessarily that history was written. But everything is, I guess, written with a sense of bias. And it's not to point the finger and say, well, these people were in the wrong. We're actually trying to move away from the blame game, I guess, so we don't want to sit in history. We actually want to go, what have we learned from that, from those groups that were marginalised, from issues that were sort of decented at the time? Um, how, have we? Number one, have we evolved? How have we evolved? And what has it taught us as a whole? And that also becomes a bit of a question, I guess, more about humanity. It is quite philosophical, as Chris said just before. Um, but there's a beautiful way that teachers can tie that in with, with their subjects as well can even look at why we learn the math that we do, the way that we do, the names that it has. There's so many different things that people have come up with or invented over the years um, that perhaps we don't even know why it is the way that it is. And so it's getting students to actually go deeper. And instead of looking for that blame or that, um, I guess, sitting in that place of who's at fault, it's what have we learned. And one of the things that I said um in my article, my recent article on decolonizing the curriculum for EduTimes Africa was how can our students, and, and they are the future, right? They're, they're the future of our world. How can they ever learn from humanity's past indiscretions if they're never actually presented with an accurate depiction of history itself? And I think we're seeing that now, that many years later things have not been solved, uh, age-old conflicts, and we question sort of, well, how did we get to this place from the 21st century? We, we, we still are having these conversations about racism, deep-rooted uh, hatred between nations and things like that. Um, and I think now more than ever, these sorts of conversations, it's really crucial for us not to remain silent. And as you said, to actually start to bring to light um, and, and find some kind of way to, to, to open a place, a safe and appropriate place for these discussions. Can I just follow up on one more, and then I'll pay, pass over to to, to Chris. Um, I, you know, how can you not agree with what you just said, Stephanie? Of course, I agree with what you just said. But then, I just think of different countries and different cultures and different pedagogical techniques that that that, that people have. And you know, you talk about learning from textbooks, and we don't do that so much anymore, except in some countries and in. In some areas, they absolutely do. That's what they do. That's their technique. That's their pedagogical technique. I mean, I, I spent quite a lot of time in my early part of my career in the Far East, where basically you taught, you, and, and there's, there's still a lot of this goes on today, 
where you taught your textbook and you taught a page a day. And you, I knew that the page that I was having to teach in the certain area that I was teaching, let's leave the content to one side at the moment, just purely the pedagogy. The same person would have been doing exactly the same thing 500 miles away in the north, you know. Now, I'm sure some things have changed slightly, but they might not have changed fundamentally because that's sort of part of the kind of techniques that there were in that country at, at, at that time. And, and I guess as well, who's to say that's not uh, the right thing to do or a good thing to do? It could be something indeed that is, um, that is entirely appropriate, you know. Maybe we learn from that. But I'm just wondering, therefore, then, how in, in, in trying to confront all of these challenges around decolonising the curriculum, we don't in itself start to, to do something that is colonised. Can you colonise the curriculum? But it is actually in itself pigeonholing what we're doing. Do you see what I mean? I do. I definitely do. And it's... In a sense, the job of the educator becomes, as we evolve, more and more and more complex because we are starting to wear more and more hats at it and our responsibility is growing. My apologies, guys. Just one second. It's interesting, uh, it's interesting um, as, as Stephanie just goes to, to deal with the real life. Um, I was uh, having a conversation with my students, uh, PhD <laughs> students here last week. Um, we were looking at socio constructs knowledge and who owns knowledge and interestingly you know the term that you just used far east that came up when we talked about the middle east i was just saying something with my students last week because even the term far east or middle east is a linguistic display of power right it's a, it's a base from where the origin dictates yeah. the space right and it's it's something that we don't you know Obviously, we, we tend to call it the Gulf when we work here, and that's sort no, of more, look, more indignant. I, and I'm not I'm not pointing a finger at because I did exactly the same thing. What yeah. I was trying, yes, yes, we very defensive. Yeah, I was trying desperately not to name a certain country, so I thought, right, yeah. I'll just give a whole area, and, in, and indeed, in doing that. I created this discussion itself. Rather cunningly, Judith, you have highlighted the, our use of language, which... Yes, um, I did, I did, absolutely. Absolutely, brilliantly done. Was, was which, which goes back to the point that was being made by both of you earlier, which <laughs> we have inbuilt bias, but not, if not even bias. We just have inbuilt constructs mm -hmm. that we don't even necessarily question. Um, and, and therefore, it's not almost a case of well, I'm coming from the dominant narrative. It's just I'm coming from my narrative. And my narrative happens to be viewed in a certain way or, or used by myself in a certain way. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's an interesting area. And I, I wonder maybe, Stephanie, just to piggyback on, on, on Judith's last question to let you come back in on this. How, does, how do educators do that? Because, as you said, many of us just receive the curricula. We, we don't actually create it ourselves. So we're actually using a toolkit or a framework that has been established by policy, you know, regulators, etc. Now, teachers have some form of agency in the, within the classroom, but not in all countries. I mean, there are countries where teachers are very much constrained by what they are allowed to say and how they are allowed to say it and certain subjects that they are allowed to discuss. Um, and even then, even if you take that out, how do we as educators not eliminate our bias, but, but 
navigate our bias in such a way that isn't, as Judith said, simply creating another form of, you said pigeonholing, right, Judith? I think that's what you said. Another form of sort of, you know, box setting. Yeah, and, and this is the this is the argument that a lot of researchers have brought up in their own studies, um, is that how we all are born with a certain amount of cultural bias because that really makes up who we are. So I think first and foremost, acknowledging that to students, that we're all programmed to think of a particular to think in a way that is our own perspective, that it's been shaped by our upbringing, by our morals our culture, perhaps religion, especially here in the Middle East, um, and at least acknowledging that first and foremost to students. Because I think also when we hear the word bias, quite often we think of it in a negative context. Yeah. We think we, we have this negative connotation that we link with bias. Now, an ideology is really just a particular, particular belief that you have, and it's not your fault that you necessarily have that. Something has shaped that particular ideology. And so I think if students start to understand, well, okay, where is Judith coming from with that perspective? Uh, Judith has been raised in, Judith, I'm going to say the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, by, by and large. Let's not go into my personal history, otherwise this you know, could be a really dull podcast as well. But anyway, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I'm actually catching myself in my own point, making a cultural assumption there because you sound yes. the way that you sound. Yeah. yeah. So again, so and and again, that's me being biased, but I was never thinking of that in a negative way. So I think first and foremost, actually letting our students know, hey, guys, I bring bias to the classroom. I bring bias. I mean, I and I've had this conversation with my students. My parents um, obviously lived through South African apartheid. They are immigrants in Australia. Um, I have grown up knowing that there was always this. Um, racial hierarchy of black, white and coloured in South African history. Now, me coming with that terminology in my South African context, and I've, I've actually had this conversation with, with high school students in the past, um, in that hierarchy in historical times and in the way that um, the political regime, I guess, was in South Africa, coloured being that you were mixed, okay, mixed race, I guess, in another country, for example, that term is quite offensive. Um, and they, they actually prefer different terms. So I'm thinking more so of African-Americans. There are many um, black Americans who would prefer not to be called African-American because they don't actually, uh, their heritage is not linked to Africa. Perhaps it's linked to Cuba or something like that. So having all of these conversations, just as we are, obviously, as educators, we do have to tread carefully because we have a professional role to play. So that little bit of vulnerability with students helps them know that A, we're human, B, I have bias, I'm born with bias, but it doesn't always necessarily mean that it's a terrible thing or that it's something I have to hold against Chris, for example. I promise, Chris, I won't hold it against you. So I think opening that up first and going, what is bias? Where do we get our cultural biases from? Where do the stereotypes come from? We get them all from Chris. <laughs> We've now decided you, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Down to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, as repre so representation of so the... I hope that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're getting ganged up on now. I, I mean, that, as I say, Stephanie, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I suppose to bring it back to a, a, a question that Chris asked um, towards the beginning, Therefore, as, as teachers, 
as educators, how do we how do we manage this and cope with this in in the classroom? Now, I can see with all that you've just been describing, I can see how we can um, di- look at this head on in a higher education setting where you've got older, you know, mature, you know, students who are there who themselves have had some life experience. You know, you you're out of your teens, just about, probably anyway, you know, so you can have that conversation, can't you? You're not only therefore talking as an educator about what might you do within your curriculum yourself, but actually how might you even talk about what you're doing with your students before you start to do it even, you know. Where I wonder how you might do this, and this is going to be the question back at you, and I started my... my, um, career as a as a school teacher so i can i can roughly understand how i might do this as i say in a, in a class of students who are anything from the age of 17 upwards 17 to 70 or 80 you know um how do i do it with a class of five-year-olds or a class of 10-year-olds what does this look like in those kind of environments where with the best will in the world, although to be honest, I have very often found that I've had some of the most mature discussions of my life with five-year-olds who themselves can be somewhat shrewd. But by and large, you know, you, you do tend to be somewhat more dictatorial in those kind of situations, don't you? You know, teacher says Absolutely. this, teacher's giving you a bit of information. Uh, you know, you've got to learn if, in, if you're in England and you're learning how to spell, you know, English, then this is the alphabet, for example. You know, so so, what advice would you give to somebody who's teaching at schools? How how they might deal with and and you know embrace, I suppose, this particular opportunity. So I love this question, um, Judith, because it's it's something that I just recently worked on um, with a local university here in the UAE. Uh, sorry, I'm saying university because I was at a university today, nursery. A local, a local nursery here in the UK, and quite often they have the same questions uh, to ask me. How do we do that with How do we do it with four-year-olds? Even, I mean, my son is two. How do I? How do I do that as a parent? Even um, with with my son who isn't even that well adapted to understand how the world works. I want to answer that by saying, and again, my background formerly as a teacher was in English literature. And this is probably having come from the Australian curriculum here to, again, the Australian curriculum, but then also looking at the British curriculum, uh, American curriculum. It really starts with the literature that we um, are exposing kids to from a young age. Now, you both know that the younger the child, the more they are absorbing and they are shaped from that young age. So the earlier we start, actually, the better, number one. Number two, um, there is some fantastic literature out there that starts with just something as simple as representation. So if you think back to the books that you were reading as a child or the stories that were read to you, um, even the nursery rhymes, things like that, we often have, when we're looking at, let's say, for example, British, Australian, American curriculum, the go-tos, the things that we'll always see there, the Shakespeare, um, you know, there's always things that are expected because, and arguably so, it's a British curriculum Australian quite closely follows the British curriculum, American um, in some way is tied into that as well with in, in terms of its influence. So 
the choices that we're making in terms of what we're exposing kids to at a young age, there are so many fantastic authors out there. I don't know if you've both seen, um, but there is, I think it's called a Little Hero series, and they actually have different versions. They're picture books, for example. Different people from history. Um, Chris, you're not we have you've We have seen. many, many on our, our daughter's shelf. Yeah, they are, they're fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's making me very happy. But, you know, being able to tell kids from a young age that there are some fantastic people in history who made a huge difference that aren't all from our country, Mm. they're from everywhere. So there's Alan, Martin Luther King, Malala, um, obviously as well, you have, and and it's not always political as well. It's not always tied to, let's say, for example, Rosa Parks, but there are some fantastic stories about David Attenborough, for example, and what he's done for the environment and, and sustainability. So starting off small with those stories the representation is what i will say early so that kids are used to seeing that um i think here in the uae for example or if you've lived the expat life before um with younger children who are living as expats they're very lucky culturally because they're I guess, exposed to that and they're absorbing that from a young age. What we have to remember is that there's kids in various countries all over the world who will never leave their home country or who perhaps have never travelled. And so bringing that into the classroom is the best way that we can do it. The other thing is, you know, we can retell stories. There's nothing wrong There's nothing wrong with retelling a story or having a student put a particular childhood story in their own context. I'll give you an example. Um the nursery that I recently worked with, we're exploring the story, we're going on a bear hunt. And it's a very old tale, we're going on a bear hunt, we're going to catch a big one, I'm not scared. I think they encounter, you know, a mountain or a rock, how are we going to get over it, should we go under it? And I, and this nursery teacher said to me, well, how am I going to make decolonization fit within this little book that I'm teaching? I said, easy, set this book in the Dubai desert, set this book in the South African or the, or the Sahara set this book in you know in the middle of uk winter have the students or, or the kids actually choose their country and retell the exact same story but with perhaps even just starting something that's culturally to them some kind of identity that they can connect with and i know that again is kind of more just hitting on diversity but it starts with these tiny little representations of them understanding oh Chris is going to tell his story from the UK. Well, Judy's going to tell her story from China. Oh, Steph's going to tell her story and, and actually paint the picture that there's a different world out there than what just exists and what's presented to us in curriculum. So I know that sounds somewhat simple, but it is simple and it can be simple and it doesn't always have to be really complex when we're working with younger kids. It's funny because... Um I mean, I love everything you just said. I I was examining a PhD thesis maybe a year and a half ago, uh, and it was on similar to the topic you're talking about. So it's a student in Dubai looking at Arabic representation or Arabic stories within international school libraries. So in the sense that expat kids, how much do they get exposed to the context in which they live within the the UAE or the wider context? Because the expat context is its own sort of microcosm. Um, and thesis was really interesting. And the external examiner, a lady from America, in the Viva raised this, said this sentence, which I'd never heard before, and I, I since went and looked it up, which is windows and mirrors. That children of, um, I say, a dominant culture need windows to look into other cultures so they can experience them. And children from perhaps more marginalized need mirrors so they can have their own identity representation reflected back at them. So it raises the sort of the profile. And you're right, it is a simple issue. It's complicated in everything that sort of surrounds, but at, at a fundamental level, 
it's about seeing and, and hearing. And to, to give sort of a, a personal example, I did classics as my first degree, so ancient Greek and Roman history, literature and, and politics. And I loved reading the Iliad, which is a, is a story about war, essentially. It's told from the male perspective. It's about, it's about war. It's about male ego. It's about conquest. And in the last five or six years, I've read a whole slew of literature written from the female perspective in the classical world. So Madeleine Miller, um, all the books she's done, Natalie Hayes, Pat Barker. Pat Barker in particular wrote one called The Silence of the Girls, which is the story of the Iliad from the female perspective. And I was a bit reticent. I was like, well, what are they going to do to the characters that I love? What are they going to do to this thing that I've had since childhood? And you read it and it's obviously told from a completely different voice, narrative, perspective, reality. And I loved it. And it didn't actually take away from the original in the sense that the enjoyment I had as a child reading it, I just obviously now read it through the eyes of a much older person, a father, a husband, you know, just somebody with more perspective, perhaps. And I think it, it can really enrich the way you see the original. Because you, you, you can literally see the story from you know multiple different angles and i think it's i think it's a really interesting way for us to to we don't have it doesn't have to be seen as we're challenging our beliefs it doesn't have to be that we're breaking down everything our identity it can simply be i can have more identity i can have more understanding because i can now attempt to understand or empathize in as much as i can with my limited bias what it's like on the other side of that conversation um and i think that's that's been that's been fascinating um yeah, and not that complicated to do, really. Um, uh, can I just ask, sorry, because I don't want to talk about myself. I wonder I, whether... Oh, sorry, yeah, go on. Oh, sorry, yeah, carry on. No, because my... I was going to say it's off on a slightly different tangent, so keep going. No, I, you go ahead, Judith. I was going to ask about language, but we'll come back to that. So, you, no, please, you go, you go ahead. Yeah, because no, because you've just got me me thinking about about fiction, about the stories that you read when you're a child, you know, and the, there's the classic debate that people have had for a long time in the UK about, you know, sh- should should we should we let kids read Enid Blyton and Rudyard Kipling and you know the kind of authors that that have had a number of things challenged against them over the years and parking that particular debate to one side for the moment. Do we sometimes, though, in all of this, ten, um, do, do, do small children a bit of a disservice in that when you're reading something and you're really little and you might be five or six or seven, you know, do, do we always think they're reading it in such... Um, a, a lateral way that they're not supposing they're in that situation, that they're not innovative and creative, and that they're play, and that they actually they, they create their own entire world around something they've read that might not be part of that book at all. I'm just wondering that sometimes whether in our efforts to try and um, try and give give young children in particular stories that include people from different countries and different races and and located in different places. Whether that really matters at all, whether they might not just do that anyway. So she slightly provocatively, Stephanie. No, no, I think it's a valid question, um, Judy. Because the thing is, too, you're right. I mean, 
regardless of, and I'm, I'm going to go back to race for a second, regardless of the skin colour, for me growing up, for example, I'll talk personally for a moment, of a particular character in a particular book, I was still going to read that book regardless. And I still loved, you know, The Magic Faraway Tree and all of the... So regardless, you're not looking for that. And I think... If I may, and I'm, I'm talking about this as well, obviously as a person of colour, but sometimes I think in, in this now 21st century way of thinking, we are becoming quite fixated on appearance and on there's a great new focus on culture and on diversity and on, and, and on embracing that, which of course is exceptionally important um, and was forgotten for so long. But I do agree with you that... Um, Focusing on that, perhaps, from a really young age and making that the only focus, I guess, does teach younger kids to look for that. And I know, for example, when I pick up my two-year-old son from nursery, he's been playing with kids from everywhere, and I love that. But never once does he think about where they're from. He just knows that's so-and-so, and I see that girl every day. Or I see, and, that's, and that's really what being human is, is about. So I think there is a way of teaching it to them. It isn't necessarily always pointing out the differences, but I guess where I'm coming from, and if we tie it back to the theories on decolonizing, it is also about allowing students to bring a sense of themselves, their own stories into the classroom, whereas, and their languages. I know, Chris, you're going to touch on languages in a moment, but rather than, and particularly here in the UAE, most of my students, when I was teaching, would have spoken a different language at home. Um, I would say probably 80% of the classroom would have spoken a different language at home or had another ear. So they were EAL, ESL learners. So to kind of bring them into the classroom and particularly just ignore that, ignore the fact that that is who they are when they're not speaking English in the classroom is, is a disservice to them and, and we're moving away, I guess, from embracing it. But I do agree with you. I think um, giving students the choice and the exposure so that the representation is there letting them do what they will with it, but at least having that option there is, is probably where we start with it, to answer your question. I mean, because to do otherwise goes back to what you were saying before. It's, you know, you're, you're effectively trying to, not you personally, but as in you're effectively trying to erase or delete a type of literature or a historical perspective rather than saying, well, in, co in our modern world, yes, that's absolutely problematic, wrong, et cetera, et cetera. However, in context, it's a product of its time, right? It tells us something about power dynamics absolutely. or et cetera, et cetera. And we can learn from that. But to erase it, obviously, to say that it's the only narrative that exists is a problem. But to erase it, I would think, is also problematic because we're effectively retroactively superimposing a set of values that potentially did not exist or at least were not acknowledged to exist. I mean, because obviously that's another, another problematic area. Yeah. Um. Yes, yes, yes. I, I agree. And, and Chris, just to, just to sort of touch on that again, because that's such an important point. And it goes back to the fact that if we don't present that as it was to the students, well, we're actually sugarcoating what history was, number one. Um, and there's a fantastic quote um, that says, you know, history history is muddy. It's always going to be muddy and it's only going to be clean if we want to try and make it look a particular way, you know, and, and we need to actually let it remain muddy because it was and these things happen. That's actually the point of history. So rather than curating it to, I guess, suit textbooks, um, pick what is appropriate to discuss. As you said, 
depending on where you're teaching, choose what's appropriate according to your context. But, I mean, take something like Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. Um, I recently, well, I say recently, it's a few years ago now. Gosh, time flies. But I remember getting consent from parents to teach that particular play. If you're familiar with it, it talks about two different yeah. religious groups and the fact that they were, you know, uh, against each other in terms of the hierarchy. But if you look at, you know, Venice at that time, that's what was happening. Yeah. That's, that's actually what was happening. And so what I had my students do was take this monologue, a very famous monologue, you know, if you prick me, do I not bleed? And I asked them to take out the two religious groups that were in this monologue and the subject of the play and replace it with groups in society that perhaps are marginalised or that perhaps you have one dominant uh, group being more powerful than the other and actually choose what they felt would be appropriate to that monologue. And I tell you, there was not a dry eye mm. in the room because some of them chose what was close to their own family struggle. Some of them chose things to do with more um, society, gender, and that essentially is decolonising but also... 21st century learning, we're actually showing them, hey, Shakespeare's still relevant, number one, which yep. I love because yep. I am a Shakespeare fan, huge fanatic. But number two, um, there's a lesson to be learned from history and actually we're still learning this lesson because we're able to still put two societal groups in this same monologue. So just to tie it back to what you were saying, exactly, there'd be no point in deleting it. It's actually what can we learn from it. Well, you're in good. I mean, you're in company here because Judith and I are both pro Shakespeare. So uh, yes, uh, we've had we've had several conversations about that um, uh, before. Uh, I, I mean, I, I have one last question, Judith. So maybe uh, if you'd like absolutely. to, would you like to ask anything else uh, before yeah. we finish with language? No, no. I just, I but I do, I just do like, I do like this, this, this conversation around the literature aspect of it actually Stephanie in particular as you say because I think you know we can we can talk very much sometimes about about textbooks on things about about sort of what we would consider facts in certain areas but actually what people learn from literature and what we can take from it but then what we can do and we can discuss with literature in 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 some ways a safer space for those that are discussing it, see what I mean? You can distance somewhat, can't you? So when you are talking about about Shakespeare and whether it's from all the challenges in Othello to, to, to those in Hamlet, to those in Merchant of Venice, to, to, I mean, all of them, actually. I mean, yeah. what I love about Shakespeare is the fact that he wrote at least three plays a year, as well as about five or six poems as well as lots of other stuff too. So he was he was basically a hack writer of his period. He was just churning this stuff out. Was he thinking about all of this in massively great detail? I don't know. Maybe he was. Maybe he was so clever that he was doing that. Or maybe he was just telling what he thought were good stories. Um, I think it's a really, that, that, though, is a really interesting way in which we can maybe... Um, discuss this with our students of any age and in any sort of a way because as I say we're doing it in a slightly different space for them and then actually they, they'll do something as you just um, gave us an example there, terrific examples Stephanie of what you did with your students and, and actually then you bring out even more, it actually becomes quite raw and quite personal doesn't it but you, you've taken it I think from that other, other sort of fictional space which I think is something that probably 
we all we all could learn from. So no, I think there's probably a whole different, a whole another discussion that we could have here with regard to that. But that I felt was a really interesting point. No, no. So maybe Chris, then on to your um, final question, particularly around uh, language. Yeah, thank you. And and actually, I mean, it, it ties in very well to the the Shakespeare segue because the language of Shakespeare is problematic for many native English speakers, and it, and that can be a, a barrier to. To going in, I'm, I'm wondering, particularly when you're talking about the inclusivity of, of representation, so allowing your students and encouraging your students to bring something of themselves into something that's established. So in, in, in you know, a Shakespeare uh, speech, um, how do we do that or how do we think about that in terms of language? You said at the beginning, obviously, English in international education is remains so far the dominant language and therefore is politicized as well. Right. It comes with a certain baggage. When you've got such multinational um, classrooms, and as you said, maybe within one student. So it's not just that there are multiple nationalities in your class. A student may themselves represent multiple nationalities and identities. How do you address that issue of, of linguistic representation and inclusivity? Um, how, how do you navigate that um, practically? Or can you, I suppose? So I guess, well, that's a good question because the thing is, is that I think, um, as you said earlier, we are presented with, for example, the Australian curriculum, very similar to the British curriculum, we teach the classics in, in English. So there's no escaping that. And the question I often get asked, whether it be here in the international system or, to be honest, back in Australia, is why are we still learning about this guy? <laughs> yeah. You know, so many years have passed and we're still learning about Shakespeare. So that's always the first question, is why are we still learning about these classics? That aside, though, um, what I often try and tell my students who perhaps are EAL in cell learners here, because when I'm presented with that question from a student who, for example, speaks Arabic fluently as their first language, you can understand why they're going, Miss, I don't need to speak Elizabethan in order to be able to get my government job, you know? Um, so I come back to, as Judith was talking about, the values that we're able to get out of the literature first and foremost. Um, and the, the powerful thing, and I always used to love when students said, I don't want to learn Shakespeare, I've heard it. It's shocking, it's boring. It's, I said, great, I can't wait to change your mind. And by the end of that, this is how the minds were changed. I often used to tell students, so coming at it from elevating their status as an ESL or an EAL learner, because quite often they would think, well, my English isn't good and now I've got to learn a different version of English. And if we're looking at the Arabic speakers, quite often they're speaking a modern version of Arabic and they find their own native Arabic, the formal Arabic, quite hard. Yeah. And a lot of those students will say, well, I, I find yeah. formal Arabic hard. How am I going to learn Elizabethan? What I used to say to them is I used to say, listen, you guys are ahead of me. Some of you in this room speak two languages, three languages. You're ahead of perhaps students that I was teaching who are only uh, speaking English, you know, who also found Shakespeare hard. And so I'd look at, at it with them as a way of actually learning a new language perhaps and having fun with it as opposed to feeling like they had to be perfect. Um, and actually I joke around with them and say, teach me a few words from your culture today. I'm going to try and remember them because it's important as, as an educator to also be vulnerable. It's really easy for me to teach in a language that I've been speaking since I was born, whether or not I speak two or three more, doesn't matter. 
but letting them know that it's okay that you're not perfect in this particular instance because I'm not perfect at your language and letting them teach you something from their culture actually sort of puts you on that level playing field and gets them to understand, well, see, I feel how you feel when you're learning Shakespeare. So that's a very broad, simple, everyday example, first and foremost. But I think it comes back to being something that um, we present it to them in a way where it shouldn't be daunting. Um, let them understand that there's, there's, you know, I say to my students as well, there's text message language, the social media language that you guys are using that I don't even know what you're talking about sometimes. And so in a sense, that's what Shakespeare was doing. Shakespeare was adding all these words to the dictionary. And when you look at the words we use every day, and you both know this, obviously, as Shakespeare fanatics, you love the bard, much of what we're using, we owe to Shakespeare mm. in our everyday language. And so presenting the relevance first for them, um, but then also coming at it from a perspective of you already know two languages or three languages. Think of this as just adding it to your to your collection, if you like, or your knowledge base. Um, that is generally like a good way of being able to present it to students because it makes them feel like this is something they can conquer. If you if you throw in a bit of science about those who already speak two or three languages, being able to pick up languages more easily, again, showing them that there's advantages to it because they're an ESL learner or an EAL learner and getting them to actually reframe. So it's just about reframing, I guess, the approach to it. Yeah, excellent. It's not an easy one, though. No, no, no. But <laughs> I, I mean, think it's... that's brilliant, though, Stephanie, because yeah. you almost you almost take it you almost take it a, a hundred and eighty degrees, don't you? You take the students from initially thinking, "Goodness me, there's a there's a barrier here. I can't read it. I don't. And if I can then read it, I don't understand it. Um, so how I'm going to cope with this? And you're flipping it around, and, and you know, giving them the kind of experience where not only then are they able to appreciate what there is there but then they're being reflective about it and they're reflecting back on themselves and on their current current circum circumstance as well you know so and and creating one hopes in the process a whole new uh, generation again of, of people who you know are ex accepting of different different sort of types of different types of literature from different countries and different ages that we can all learn from can't we because let's face it when you look at themes there are common themes throughout life and they're pretty much the same now as they were in, you know, 16th century. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And if, I think if we can get that through to our students, um, and again, that exactly what we've just spoken about with Shakespeare, pulling that now from different literature or different, you know, topics that you're covering and, and bringing that relevance back in or questioning, so why did Shakespeare write about these two religions or groups or whatever, just bringing it back, telling telling history, but then bringing it back to our 21st century. And really, I guess if I can end on this, that's the whole point of decolonization. How are we evolving? What have we learned from what's happened in the past? And how is it still going to be teaching us lessons with, with where we are today, I think, is, is really the beauty in this whole conversation. And I think it doesn't have to be as complex as people perhaps perceive it to be. There's actually a beauty in it, you know, that we're, we're really learning from each other and we're learning from perhaps the stories that weren't told, in a sense, as well. I can't think of a better way to end a podcast than that, Stephanie. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and I hope that we'll be able to do so again soon in the future. So thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you both. So thanks for your time and thank you for having me.